Hey, um, I, I want to just begin by sharing a couple of things that are kind of exciting that, that God is doing uh, here. Uh, as you know, about uh, 14 weeks ago, something like that, we started a school of ministry with the idea that we wanted to equip people for the work of the kingdom, whether they were going into ministry or whether they uh, simply wanted to do ministry in addition to their jobs. And we really didn't know how much momentum it would, it would grab. We really didn't. We underestimated, honestly, what God was doing in the hearts of people. And so we, we launched our first class with 65 students, uh, only to be outdone by the next one with about 100 students, and only to be outdone by the one that we're currently, we just started one week into it, and uh, we have well over 100 students now packed into a room that probably is better suited for 60 people. Uh, but it's exciting. This one is on evangelism and how to share your faith. And it's a combination of instructors. Um, uh, Jared from South Africa, who is our evangelist, is uh, our primary uh, leader and teacher through this. Uh, he's seen over 2.1 million people come to faith in Christ through his ministry. And he is definitely qualified to lead us uh, in this process. But we wanted to let you know that um, you can still sign up. If you want to sign up for this class, uh, the entire course has been underwritten. The tuition, the book, the everything. It is absolutely no charge to you. Five weeks left. And uh, we want to just encourage you to be a part of that. We believe that God is giving us opportunity to the nations. We really do. And we didn't really know how all of that would come together. But even this morning... Uh, we had a conversation. We'll have a meeting tomorrow about launching Influence Church in Vienna. And uh, as you know, we live stream. There, there are really uh, hundreds and hundreds of people who watch this service live worldwide. Just got an email from a guy in Australia who is, uh, is just a regular part of their family's routine to watch live stream. Uh, you know, we have uh, a congregation in Abu Dhabi, United Emirates, that live streams this service. And now it looks like we're going to be launching Vienna. And uh, that sounds like, isn't that awesome? So God is doing something. We also know that this school of ministry has a worldwide appeal. Um, our Facebook uh, page has kind of, uh, is gaining at about 200 likes per day. So we have an audience of about 45,000 there. By this time next year, it'll be about 150,000 people, about half of which are international. And we believe we're going to touch the world with this tool. We're going to launch the online school next year in the spring. So it will be available literally around the world for people to enjoy, to be a part of, to grow, to train up for the kingdom of God. Isn't that great? I mean, isn't God, it's just a good thing God's doing. Uh, with that comes an explanation. Inside your bulletin, there is an envelope that says chairs, and you probably think, what is that all about? Uh, I thought we have chairs. I'm sitting in one. Uh, what we want to do is we are in phase two of our renovation. As you know, we've, we've only been in this building about 10 months. And so we're a church, if you're new, we're a church a little over two years old, so God has blessed us amazingly. But outside those walls there, we're enclosing that whole area. We're going to turn that into a, a, an area where we can do uh, conferences, where we can do our school of ministry and so forth. So we need some additional chairs. We just ask you to take an envelope and pray about it. Uh, if God leads you in that way, we don't feel like we need to make anybody feel guilty or feel compelled. Um, in a way, just see what God leads you. If God leads you to buy one chair, 100 chairs, whatever you do, it's great. And if God leads you nowhere in, that, in the chair business, God bless you. That's okay. Um, we just really believe that man ought to operate by revelation. 
that you see the Bible is the revelation of God. In fact, the book of Revelation is called the revealing, right? The unveiling of Jesus. And in this uh, series that we do, we do a different message at 11 that we do at 9. In this one, we're talking about this unveiling. We're talking about prophecy and current events. So much is happening in our world, so many changes happening so fast, we almost don't know where to stop, look, and put our feet down. We see stability and instability at the same time. We see good signs and we see bad signs, or what appear to be bad signs at the same time. Trying to navigate through those things are some, is sometimes difficult, and yet the Scripture affirms this truth. God does nothing unless He first reveals it to His prophets. So God says, I want to show you how I speak and how I communicate. I want to tell you something about today, and I want to tell you something about the future. I will do it through the prophecies I have given. I will give you insights into the coming events in our world. We just watched what looked like a very interesting midterm election. My favorite part of the entire midterm election was the 18-year-old Christian girl from West Virginia who was elected to the state assembly. Zero experience. She ran on a platform of, I'm a Christian. I don't believe in abortion. I think it's okay to own a gun. And, uh, and I want to give businesses a cut in their taxes. And she was running against a 44-year-old seasoned attorney, and she won. I looked at that, and I said, glory be to God, because here's an 18-year-old who probably, a lot of 18-year-olds are not sitting around thinking about running for state assembly. And they're not thinking they're going to beat an incumbent 44-year-old attorney. And if they are thinking about it at any age, the last thing they're thinking about doing is standing on principle. They're not taught thinking about, I'm going to put my Christianity first, I'm going to put my convictions first. They're thinking, what do I need to do to get elected? Now, that only leads us to a place uh, where we are in this message. It is that, that God will always honor you when you stand for him, when you honor him. When you just say, you know what, I'm going for it. I'm going I'm to put my, my, first, uh, my best foot forward, and I'm going to pronounce the name of Jesus Christ. Regardless, don't read the circumstances, don't read the history, don't read the world that's going on and let it determine your behavior. Follow the Word of God. Follow the Spirit of God. As God leads you, let God speak through you. See what God can do. God will always bless those who seek to honor Him. Bless the Lord, O my soul, the Scripture says, and that all that is within me bless His holy name. Wherever I go, I just want to bless the Lord. Everything is within me, bless the Lord. And then when I encounter people, guess what I do? I bless the Lord. I bless them through the Lord. And I lift up Jesus. Today we're going to talk about the Antichrist. Now it's interesting that he's not called the Anti-God. He's called the Antichrist. There's a reason. You see, the word Christ means the anointed one. It's the, it's the equivalent of the Messiah. It's the one that God sent to redeem mankind. The Bible says there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved than the name of Jesus. God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above Every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
So what the enemy wants to do is he wants to diminish the name and the title of Jesus Christ. He wants us to get our focus off of Jesus and on to God. That way, everybody feels comfortable. Everybody believes in God of some kind. Even those who are atheists are their own God. So there's this idea that Satan wants to do is he wants to diminish the idea of Christ so that we don't exalt him. So when the Bible refers to this man who's coming in the future, as the prophets declared, he will be the one who will mainly be known as the one who is against Jesus or who counterfeits Jesus, or who perverts and distorts the idea of who is Christ. So what we want to do today is we want to kind of take you on a journey. We're going to give you a lot of scriptures, and here's what I want you to know. I know that you're going to want all these scriptures. You're not going to be able to probably look all of them up, so I'm not going to ask you to not even try unless you're really, really good, okay? But here's what I'm going to do. Ask you to write the references down. You can also go on Influence Facebook and I have the complete outline of this message on there. Not only the outline, but all the scriptures. You can also go on our Influence website and get information. This sermon is also broadcast. You'll see it on there. Uh, it's typically up uh, sometimes as early as Monday. But, but definitely by Tuesday, you'll be able to, to, to review this message, be able to take it all in, be able to share that with other people. Um, or if you just want an audio version, you can do it on iTunes. But let's think about this. Let's, let's look back. What have some people said about the coming and the future? Arnold Toynbee, a historian, wrote these words. The nations are now ready to give the kingdoms of the world to any one man who will offer a solution to the world's problems. Now that's a little bit frightening, is it not? And yet historically hasn't it been true. That there have been those who have been influential historically, rulers who have offered a solution in a desperate time. We saw it during uh, the rise of, of, of Germany prior to and during World War II, where there was a, a problem with the economy. One man came along with a solution, and they want, people wanted the solution so bad that they would do anything, follow any ideology that was out there, just to relieve their financial burden. Imagine if, if this economy, if this nation was spun into an irrevocable kind of uh, depression, if it was spun into chaos that, where food was not able to be had, what would you do? How would you say if someone came along and said, I have a solution, I can fix this, and everybody else is, is just singing the blues. You might say, well, you know what? This guy's not doing anything. Let's give him a chance. The Bible says that's exactly what's going to happen in the end of times. Let me give you another one. Paul Henry Spack was the, the first president of the United Nations General Assembly. Listen to his words. He said, we do not want another committee. We have too many already. What we want is a man of sufficient stature to hold the allegiance of all the people, and to lift us up out of the economic morass in which we are sinking. Send us a man, whether he be God or devil, and we will receive him. That tells you a little bit what's going on in some of the thinking of historians, politicians, world leaders. 
How about another one? The UN World Constitution. The age of nations must end. Aren't we seeing that already? It's no longer about nations particularly and about patriotism to a nation worldwide. What it's really becoming, it's almost becoming this globalization, this society that looks at the world as a whole and focuses not on states or countries, but really on cities of influence. So we could, we could name very quickly cities of influence. We could take cities like New York or Los Angeles. We could take cities uh, like Geneva. And we could go on and on and on around the world and say they're known for something because they're cultural influences. They, they shape the minds of people in such a way that they look at life differently. Fashion is designed to move in a certain way. The financial world moves in a certain way. The entertainment moves in a certain way because of these cultural cities that really make up a globalization of mankind. So it says the age of nations must come to an end. The governments of nations have decided to order their separate sovereignties into one government to which they will surrender their arms. Did you notice that last phrase? To which they will surrender their arms. In other words, let's build a one world government. Let's yield everything to that one world government. And let's trust that government will do what is best for us. Now historically, if you know your history very well, you know that government is, is not always trying to do what is best for everyone. Sometimes government does what's best for government. Sometimes it shapes the future for its own profit. And what this UN World Constitution says is that nations are moving in that direction. Already we hear that war cry of, well, what does the UN have to say about it? Or can't we, can't we just issue some kind of a, of a statement, an embargo? Can't we have some kind of restrictions on, a, on trade to control? And yet control doesn't work. We're watching it in Iran. It's interesting right now that you see this, uh, this interesting kind of got-revealed connection that happened uh, with our own government in Iran. And, and in, the, in the, just the desperate fight to try to solve the problem of ISIS, the Islamic State, that is moving quickly and quickly, and no one either wants to do anything or knows what to do or is unwilling to get involved in that situation. So in desperation, we go to the nation that we know is creating atomic weaponry, and yet we don't want to do anything to disrupt that because, after all, it might affect economics around the world. We also see uh, that rising up. Do you remember uh, that figure from Iran, uh, um, that, that, that former president that, that came out of power and, and now is back in the limelight, Ahmadinejad? Ahmadinejad is now positioning himself to come back into power. Well, what does all of that mean? Well, it means that we have to watch current events, but primarily what we want to do is say, what does the Word of God have to say? So I want to take you to, first of all, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to look at a key passage that has to do with the Antichrist, who's known as the man of sin, the son of perdition. Remember, he's going to rise up in the last days. He's going to create a, a stability within the world, sign a covenant with the nation of Israel, and allow them to even build a temple on the temple mount. Now, let's look at it. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the gathering together to him, 
So the subject matter is, brethren, I'm writing to you Christians, I want to talk to you about the second coming. I want you to get the information straight. I don't want you to miss out on what I'm saying. I don't want you to, to, to misunderstand or be shaken in mind. In other words, don't worry. You know, a lot of people don't want to think about the future or they don't want to think about Revelation because they get fearful. The Bible says that's understandable, but don't do that because God is in control. God is in control. God is in control of our world. God is in control of your individual life. You can trust him. Don't be shaken, it says, in mind or troubled either by spirit or by a word or by a letter from us as if the day of Christ has come. So what was the message going around in Thessalonica at the time? Jesus has already come and we're in trouble. Too late. I'm sorry. It's going to be bad. He says, no, that's not true. Let me set the stage straight. What's the chronology of biblical prophecy? That's what it's telling us here. And it says here in the scripture, let no one deceive you by any means. Because that day, that is the second coming, will not come unless there's a falling away comes first. So what's the first thing that's going to happen? People are going to lose their love relationship with Jesus. People are going to start taking Christianity and treating it like a hobby. People are going to say, you know, I, I, I know it's really I should do that, but after all, you know, I have so many things going on in my life, I really can't give myself to that. I'm going to be a Christian, but I'm just, I have to do it on my own terms, and I have to be, well, not that committed. There's a falling away. There's going to be some that are in the falling away. They're going to say, you know what? I used to believe that stuff, but I don't think I believe it anymore. Or I'm not really sure the Bible is the Word of God. So that's what's going to be characteristic of the last days. Never have we seen two things happening stronger. One, falling away and revival. More Christian, more people are becoming Christians worldwide than ever before. But at the same time, we see people that are also more complacent about their faith than ever before. The falling away will come first. For first step, falling away. Secondly, the man of sin is revealed. Now this is the son of perdition or the Antichrist. So what's going to happen? Falling away, then there's going to be a revelation. Will people know who he is right off the bat? Absolutely not. He will be a figure that will absolutely captivate the minds and hearts of the world. He will be able to work a peace program that everyone can buy into. So it says the falling away will come first, then the man of uh, sin, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God. Okay, now... We see a little bit more of the chronology here. Falling away first, man of sin is revealed, but he comes not as a, a, a despotic ruler at first. No, he comes really as a proponent of peace, a, a, a fixer of society. But what's interesting is this last phrase. Notice what it says. He sits as God in the temple of God. Well, within the context, we know this has to do with the Jewish people. Right now, they do not have a temple. At Temple Mount right now, that's greatly disputed. There's, there's all kinds of aggressive acts that are happening there today. Uh, we fully expect that the Prime Minister of Israel is going to take some pretty strong steps to bring down the violence and the bloodshed that's happening there. 
because it's probably the most hotly contested piece of property in the entire world. Why? Is it because we don't have smart people working on it? No, it's not it at all. Is it because it's just so valuable everybody wants it? No, it is because of the spiritual and the prophetic value that that piece of property has. The enemy, Satan, knows what the future is about by, only by Scripture. But what has he done? He's inciting all of this because they're trying to prevent this building of the temple. And yet at the same time, the building of the temple is going to be a part of God's end time scheme. A Jewish temple on the Temple Mount where, a, where a, a Muslim mosque is, is not exactly good news to the local population, as you can well imagine. In fact, we even wonder, how could that happen? What would, what would, what would bring about something like that? Well, would it either have to be the devastation of a major army, or it would have to be the hand of God, or it would have to be a man of peace that could say, no, we can do that. But notice what it says about him. It says that he will take his seat in that temple, and he will say, I am God. When that happens, we enter into what's called the Great Tribulation Period. That's halfway into that process. He will sit and he will show himself as God. So what's the ultimate revelation is, I'm God, worship me. Now, the stage is set. The stage is set in three ways, I believe. Number one, complacency. We're living in a day of complacency. Complacency about a lot of things, not just Christianity. Complacency about life. Stepping back, relegating responsibility to somebody else. We're living in a day of globalization. Globalization is setting the stage for what's happening here. It's taking away that individual sovereignty of nations. It's shifting it around so that we, we create not, not individual states, but rather a one-world government that the Bible clearly predicts would be coming, along with a one-world currency. And then technology. Technology is setting the stage. Right now, we're living in a day where... The things that are spoken of in the Bible that no one could have ever imagined are now possible. For example, not possible for every eye to see the returning Jesus without technology. And yet, now we live in a day where I can pick up my phone and worldwide, I can watch Influence Church. Worldwide, I could watch the return of Jesus Christ. Everything is instant. Everything is instant. Everything is broken down in terms of your privacy and my privacy and what who you are what you do and what you know so technology is doing that the technology right now in order to just create a, a, a tracking system or a payment system even tattoos now invisible tattoos that literally can move across a bar scan machine and automatically duck, deduct from your bank account can you imagine that that sounds a little futuristic doesn't it and yet John, the revelator, wrote in 90 A.D. that there would be coming one who would prevent all the selling and the buying, all of commerce, to, would be controlled simply by a mark on the hand or on the forehead. 2,000 years ago he wrote that. Can you imagine living like 500 years ago? What does that mean? What does that look like? And yet you could have a technology that would be totally invisible and yet viable in this situation. Well, here's what I want to do. I want to take you on a journey as if we were sitting down in a living room. And you said, well, can you tell me something? Can you just take me on a, on a journey through some key scriptures that would help me to understand so I can put all of this in kind of a, 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 an understanding of a place to start? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start walking you through what the Bible says and what it reveals just in part. 
If we, we would need like three days to really dig into this, but I'm going to give you what I can in, in, in the two hours that we have left today. <laughs> Somebody who just came here for the first time said, oh no, what did we get ourselves into? But I want to take you back to the book of Genesis. Now, the book of Genesis is really interesting because every major doctrine in the Word of God is introduced in the first 15 chapters of the book of Genesis, including the doctrine of Satan and the Antichrist. The first prophecy about the coming Antichrist is seen in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Let's look at this scripture. And here's the scripture. God says... And I will put enmity. Now, this is, he's talking to Eve. Eve has sinned. Remember, she's, she's bought into the lie of the serpent. And I will put enmity, that is friction, problems, between you, that is the serpent, and the woman. Between your seed, that's the Antichrist, and her seed, that is Jesus. He will bruise your head, that would be a mortal wound, and you shall bruise his heel. What we learn here is really interesting. First of all, it's a prophecy about the virgin birth that's coming. But what's interesting about it is that woman doesn't have a seed. Man does. And there's something here that doesn't, that's just much deeper than meets the, the, the eye. Predicting that, but furthermore, it says of the serpent that you're going to have a seed as well. In other words, there's going to come a miraculous birth somehow, an unexpected revealing of this man of sin, of this Antichrist, is going to come out of demonic forces. Now, what do we learn about this one as we move down the, the passage of Scripture? Well, let's go to the book of Daniel. We learn that he is of Jewish descent. The Antichrist will be of Jewish descent, at least in part. We know that from a lot of scriptures, but it, in, in particular, one in Daniel chapter 11 and verse 37. And here's what it says. He shall, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers. Now, that's a very unique Jewish phrase. He's not going to regard the God of his fathers. In other words, Jehovah God is not going to be a part of his game plan, nor the desire of women, nor the regard of any God. For he shall exalt himself above all others. In other words, the only thing that motivates this one who's coming is himself. Totally, totally enamored with himself and the worship of who he is. So he's not concerned about God, the God of Jehovah God. He's not concerned about women. You can't buy him. You can't tantalize him. You can't tempt him with anything because it's all about this, this narcissism, this worship me kind of thing that's going on in his life. He will be worshiped as God. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4. It says he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. So what do we learn? The seed of the serpent, there's a prediction. He's of Jewish descent. He will be worshipped as God and desire that worship. Furthermore, we learn something about power and wonders. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9. The coming of the lawless one. 
Now, it's interesting that uh, the Antichrist is called the lawless one. We are living in a day where we see increasing lawlessness, aren't we? If uh, many of you I know are uh, in, our, in our congregation here and in our first service, you're part of law enforcement. You're seeing lawlessness on the rise. We're seeing it worldwide where laws are not honored. People don't care that they break the law. I was doing a, uh, an interview with uh, the History Channel on the end of the world. It was about a three and a half, four hour interview, and it was everything that you can imagine from the book of, of Revelation all the way through to all that's going on in, 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 in the world and current events. And at the end of it, the interviewer said to me, he looked at me and he said, okay, this is kind of off the record, but I have to ask. What is it that scares Phil? What is it that concerns you most about the future? And without even thinking about it, I hadn't even planned it out, I simply said lawlessness. When the extreme becomes mainstream, lawlessness. He's called the man of lawlessness. So here we see the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, so that, now look what it says, with all power and signs and lying wonders. So how does he convince someone of, of his greatness, of who he is? He does it by lying. He does it by miraculous signs and wonders and by power. Dazzles the eye. Well, you say, well, what are we supposed to do? How do we prevent this? Remember, God does nothing unless he first reveals it to his prophets. You see, everything you need to know about the future is in the Word of God. How to protect yourself, how to look, how to see, and what's going on in our world. God has not destined us to wrath. God is, a, is protecting us. God is loving us. God is watching over His children. And He will guide us even in the days that we live in. We also know He will be a religious figure. Now let's go to Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship Him. Did you see that? All that dwell on the earth will worship him. What about me? Well, remember, if you're a Christian, we believe that God is going to take us from here. It's called the rapture. We'll be taken out. Because notice what it said. Whose names have not been written in the book of life, of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So, so what do we have to do? We have to make sure that we know Jesus. We have to make sure that we have really had our names written in the book of life that we've been saved, that we know the Lord, that it's not one of those, you know, kind of I think so kind of religions, but it's a know so kind of religion. I know that I've been transformed by God. I know that I'm saved. I know that I've been born again into God's kingdom. And you want to have that assurance. If you don't have that assurance of God, we want you to have that before you leave today, and we'll show you that at the end of this service. But it says here he's a religious figure. He also will control commerce. Now look at this, Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 through 18. It says, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their forehead, that no one could buy or sell except the one who has the mark or the name of the beast, or the number of his name, and his number is 666. That's pretty clear, isn't it? It says he's going to control commerce. 
In other words, it doesn't matter how much money you have set aside. You know, the Swiss had a great plan there for a while. And even that's crumbling now, isn't it? Offshore banking is crumbling. You know, it's all setting the stage that you cannot hide money anywhere. There comes a point at which it says, no, we're going to control that. We're going to put our hand on that. We're going to watch that. And it says here, no one's going to be able to buy. You can't buy anything. You can't sell anything unless you have a mark. Well, what do I have to do to get the mark? Well, the Bible says that I have to bow down and worship this one called the lawless one. Well, that doesn't sound like good news, does it? Okay? So, his appearance will do something, though. Once this tribulation begins, and I want you to see God's plan here at the end, his appearance will unleash God's messengers on planet Earth. The first is Revelation chapter 11 and verse 3. The two witnesses will appear. And it says here, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, who are these two? These are two that God raises up. He puts on the earth, and they are, what are they doing? They're telling about Jesus. In fact, at one point, they're actually killed and they come back to life. It says when they're killed, the entire world rejoices. How does the world even know that they've been killed? Well, because of technology. You see, when John wrote 2,000 years ago, he wouldn't have known about that. But all of a sudden, now you see, you see what's going on. You see how this all fits together in the end times. These two witnesses are going to raise up, and they're going to be preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God, and they don't care about the consequences of their actions. Secondly, there's going to be 144,000 Jewish evangelists, 12,000 from every tribe of the nation of Israel. Do you realize the technology of today enables us to, to, to be on the doorstep of understanding the retracing of the original tribes of the nation of Israel because of DNA? The gathering of those tribes, all those records have been lost. You couldn't find what tribe you were part of uh, and now they're saying, no, we believe that we are close or almost there to understanding how to trace back the tribes by the DNA. Well, that's something in our day. It points to this, this truth here. And it says here, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name on their foreheads. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Now, we don't know what that means. It's interesting that it says the mark of the beast will be on the hand or on the forehead, but it says of these Jewish evangelists, it'll be on their forehead. In other words, there will be no denying who they are. Do You know, I read this quote one time. Think about this. The gods you worship, the gods you worship, they write their names upon your face. You see, the eyes are the windows of the soul. What's in the heart proceeds out of the mouth. What's deep inside of us is revealed. And it says here that these evangelists are going to have the name of the Father on their forehead. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. That's Jesus, the Lamb. These are the redeemed among men, being the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, and they are without fault before the throne of God. Wow. But then finally, have you, you ever heard uh, someone say, well, we have to get the gospel out to every single person, then Jesus can come back? 
Well, that's simply just not the case. Because guess what? God has a plan. He has two witnesses. He has 144,000, but he has something else. He has an airborne evangelist, an angel. It says here in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. Now, this is during the tribulation. Two witnesses, 144,000 on the ground, airborne angel preaching the gospel of the kingdom wherever he goes. And it says, uh, the everlasting gospel preach those who dwell on the earth to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and every people. In other words, everyone is going to hear the gospel before the end. Everyone is going to have an opportunity to believe on God. And it says here, they're with a saying with a loud voice, and here's what the message is, fear God. Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all the springs of the water. Now, I put a little note in there, who made. You see, one of the things that's critical in your faith is understanding that you were created by a divine act of God and did not evolve. You weren't just chance. Even in this final appeal that this angel makes, it's bringing us back to this idea of creation. Because if you don't understand and, and, and adhere to creation... It destroys the concept of who is God and is sovereign. So you're going to have a world that at this particular time, because the Christians are gone, you're going to have a world that has bought into the ideology and the philosophy of the world that we live in today. By that time, it seems to imply that everyone will just say, oh yes, we were not created or made. No, we evolved. We somehow brought ourselves up out of the primeval sludge and, and stood up on, on, on dry ground and were educated, and that's the explanation of our life. We were by chance. You see, so many people operate by chance instead of by faith. They operate by fate instead of by faith. And what the Bible tells us here, even in the end times, it says, fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth the sea, and the springs of life. Worship that God. Now let me show you a few life applications. Here's the first thing that I think we need to do as believers. We need to be bold with the gospel of Jesus Christ. People need to hear the message. And you know, people aren't objecting to us talking about Jesus. People are actually open, more open than I've ever seen. They're receiving. You say, well, tell me about that. They might be close to church. They might be close to religion, but they're not close to Jesus. And the Bible says, if I lift up Jesus, I will, that, that when we lift him up, that we will draw all men unto the Father. I want to encourage you to be a part of our school of ministry. Be a part of learning how to share your faith and learning how to tell people about what's going on and read the times that we live in. And then overcome, overcome complacency in your own life with the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me show you what I do. This is the only way I can do this on a daily basis. Sometime... In those first hours of my rising, I will say something like this. Spirit of God, I am prone to do what is wrong. I am prone to neglect you and your truth. Spirit of God, would you just fill me right now? Would you speak to me? 
God, would you, would you allow me to be a mouthpiece to someone in my world? Would you let me tell the story of Jesus Christ? And when I do that, it changes the whole perspective of my life. I begin to look at people differently. I begin to look at people and think about their future. Instead of seeing an obstacle, I see an opportunity. Instead of seeing a reluctance on their part, I see a willingness on their part. I see people that are really hungry to know the Father. And the Father wants us to come to Him just like that. This past week, we, uh, we took a couple of days and we went back to celebrate the birthday of my daughter, the birthday of my granddaughter, they were within one day of each other, and the birth of our now fourth uh, grandson, or grandchild rather, Atlas. How about that for a name? Hold up the world, right? Now, the thing I love is that little three-year-old named Riley. She loves me. I'd like to think she loves me more than everybody, and I'm pretty sure it's true. But what I do, and when I show up, she goes, Papa, 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 and she puts her hands up in the air and wants me to pick her up. Now, I could do this. I could say, you know what? You got two legs. Use them. I can't be carrying you around. You're going to be wanting me to do this when you're four. It's ridiculous. I could do that, right? And you would say, well, that's really cold. I can't even believe you'd think of it. Well, you know I would never do that. What do I do? When she says that, instantly she's coming up here. The greatest joy of my life is when she doesn't want to go from here to somebody else. When they say, can I hold you? No, I want to be with Papa. That's what you want to hear. You want them to love you the most. We all know grandchildren are just better people than children. They're smarter. They're better looking. I don't understand it. I looked at my son. I said, why weren't you this smart? I mean, clearly, you know, brilliant, skipped a generation. Look at them. Look at these kids. They're just amazing. Amazing. But now imagine that you go to the father and you're going, Papa, pick me up. See, the father never says no. You got two legs walking your own. The greatest joy of the Father is when you want Him, when you need Him, when you want to be carried and embraced by the Father. You see, He loves you. He loves everything about you. When you feel guilty, it's not coming from Him. When you feel rejected, it's not coming from Him. Sometimes he lets us go on our own because we want to, only to create the hunger and the thirst and the desire to be in his arms. To be in the arms of the Father. I want you just to stand with me right now, and I want you to close your eyes, and I want you just to imagine something right now with me. Get your eyes closed. I want you to think about this. I want you to take your biggest challenge, your biggest problem, your biggest difficulty. You may feel like you're not that valuable to God. You may feel like God doesn't love you. There may be a lot of things going on in your heart and in your mind right now. But I want you to imagine yourself as a little kid, three, four years old, and Jesus walks into the room. And you got all these burdens. You got all these unanswered questions. You got all these challenges going on in your heart, in your mind. And you see Jesus walk in. And you throw your arms in the air. And you say, Jesus. And he looks at you with eyes of love. He looks you with a tender heart. 
and he picks you up. And he squeezes you really tight. And he whispers in your ear, my child, I love you. I will always love you. There's nothing you have done or will do that will ever prevent my love for you. Don't worry. Don't worry about what's going on. Don't worry about the difficulties of the hour. I've got you. And then he squeezes you, puts his arms around you and just holds you tight. You expect it's going to be a hug for 10 seconds or 15, but it's a hug that keeps going on. It's a hug that breaks down every barrier you have in your heart and your mind. It's the kind of hug that just brings a tear to your eye. It's the kind of hug that says it's going to be okay because I am your